Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. The great Frederick Beekner passed away last month at the age of 96. If you don't know Frederick Beekner, he was an author, a poet, a preacher, and a theologian who probably helped shape Christian imagination in America as much as almost anyone over the last century. And he's probably most famous for saying this, here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen, don't be afraid. How many of you have heard that quote? Yeah, it's really popular. But what you may not know, even if you've heard that quote, is that it actually comes from a a beautiful and moving essay that Beekner wrote about the grace of God. And it's pretty short, so I actually wanna, to begin this morning, I'm gonna kinda just read it over us, okay? Here's what it says. After centuries of handling and mishandling, most religious words have become so shop-worn, nobody's much interested anymore. But not so with grace. For some reason, mysteriously, even derivatives like gracious and graceful still have some of the bloom left on them. Grace is something you can never get, but can only be given. There's no way to earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. A good sleep is grace, and so are dreams. Most tears are grace. The smell of rain is grace. Somebody loving you is grace. Loving somebody is grace. Have you ever tried to love somebody? A crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace, that there's nothing you have to do. The grace of God means something like this. Here is your life. You might have never been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. And there's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out and take it. But maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. I love that. And Beekner is right. Grace is a crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith. But you see, grace is not only central to Christianity in general, it's central to the character of God. Do you know that term is used about 220 times in Scripture? Grace. And the vast majority of them are referencing God's posture toward humanity, how he sees us, how he interacts with us. You see, grace is one of God's core characteristic. God told us as much when he describes himself in Exodus 34. He said, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, that's Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out. Here's the description God gives about God's self. The Lord, the Lord, the God of compassion and grace. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not exclude the guilty, excuse the guilty. 
Those six words above that I've put in bold are the focus of this six-week teaching series we started last Sunday called The Nature of God. We're doing this series at the beginning of our year of healing and wholeness that we kicked off a few weeks ago because experiencing the fullness of life that God desires for each of us starts with understanding the nature of God. Or to put it another way, our understanding of who God is and what God is like directly informs our understanding of who we are and what we should be like. I love how Crispin Mayfield says it in his book, Attached to God. He says, the question of what God is like is not merely an abstract one. When we're given a distorted picture of God, we end up with unhealthy practices that don't only impact our personal lives. How we relate to God affects our systems, our politics, and how we practice our faith in the world. If we can't see the delight that God has in us as beloved children of God, like Joe was talking about a second ago, we will also be blind to God's delight in others. We'll fail to see the reflection of God in the eyes of others. And when we can't see these things, we run the risk of dehumanizing others, sometimes even in violent ways, all while claiming to love God. You see, our understanding of God informs our lives, but not only our lives, the way that we live and move in the world. It's the foundation upon which everything else is built. So last week, we kicked off this series by talking about the first characteristic that God lists in Exodus 34, compassion. How God is always moving toward us in love. If you were here, you remember that compassion is a, a word filled with movement. It's not just a feeling. It's something that is compulsory. It moves God toward us, and it moves us toward our neighbor. That is what compassion is. And today, we're talking about God's grace. So this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. You can turn there if you've got your Bible or your phone. The verse will also be on the screen. You can follow along there, so no pressure either way. Now, no one knows who wrote Hebrews. Um, it is unsigned. Uh, I think it was written by the great gospel preacher and missionary Priscilla. Um, and I think she left it unsigned because a woman writing a divinely inspired book of the Bible in that culture would have been beyond scandalous. But regardless of who wrote it, the letter has a lot in common with other New Testament writings in that it is constantly correcting misunderstandings about who God is and what God is like. And I like to call this kind of discourse, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And that's because that's how Jesus often corrected misunderstandings about God's character and purpose when he would speak with people. Like when he said in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. You see, in Jesus's time, it was assumed that God was okay with, or maybe even endorsing of a religion that loved neighbors, but hated enemies. Jesus corrects that. Jesus says, that's not true. God calls us to love everyone. You've heard it said that God was like this, but I say to you, God is actually like this. The author of Hebrews, and essentially every other author of the New Testament, picks up this, you've heard it said, but I say to you, mantle from Jesus to help people know the truth about who God is. Now, quick side note, this has always been a core part of what it means to be a Christian. The false narratives about who God is or what God is like, they, they've changed somewhat over the last few thousand years, but our call to remind people of the truth about God has not. 
especially when these false narratives come from other Christians. Let me give you an example. When you see a Christian hating someone else in the name of God, remind them of the words of Jesus we just read. Love your neighbor and love your enemy too. When you hear a Christian claim God prefers one country over another or one people group over another, remind them that the clearest picture we have of heaven is a place where every tribe, tongue, and nation are represented. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews does over and over again. In the passage we're looking at this morning, we see them confronting the false narrative that God is vengeful and vindictive. See, that was a very popular understanding of God's character at the time. My mentor used to call this the Santa Claus narrative. You know the uh, Santa Claus is coming to town song? How's it go? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. But why do we need to be good for Santa? What are the consequences? Coal. No presents, right? So think about it. Santa is always watching you. Sleeping or awake, that's weird, right? Inappropriate. I didn't consent to Santa being in that kind of relationship with me. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake, because it's really not just for goodness sake, right? It's to avoid coal, because no presents on Christmas and coal is terrible. Nobody wants that. Santa sees you all the time, and any time you're bad, he's making that list, right? Checking it twice, and he is going to give you coal. When it comes to our faith, the Santa narrative is the idea that God is always watching you, just waiting for you to mess up so that he can punish you. This was a common belief about God then, and it remains a common belief about God now. I want you to raise your hand if you maybe grew up with some version of that understanding of God. A lot of us. This false narrative is particularly insidious because it's partially true. God does see you when you're sleeping. God does know when you're awake. He knows when you've done something good or bad. But even more than that, God knows the things you've kept hidden from everyone else. God sees our hearts, our thoughts, our motives, and what we do when we think no one else is watching. That's all true. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in our passage for today. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Nothing is hidden from God. Even the things that we think we've hidden are uncovered and laid bare before him. That's all true. But the false narrative about God takes it a step further. You see, the false narrative says that because this is true, God is angry with us. The false narrative teaches that when everything is laid bare before God, he is disgusted and we should be ashamed. That's what the false narrative says. But that's where this understanding of God needs some serious correction. And the author of Hebrews does just that in the next verse. They say, therefore, which is this time for us to pause and say that because all of it's true, what I just said. So the previous verse there about everything being un, uh, not able to be hidden and laid bare before God, because all that's true, therefore, 
Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. The author is saying, not only is God not disgusted with you, even in your worst moment, God gets it. God empathizes. God gets it because Jesus, God in the flesh, has been through what we've been through. Jesus empathizes with our weakness. He understands our pain and our problems. We just sang about it. The God who weeps, the God who bleeds, the God who put on flesh and went through what we go through. Jesus gets it. And even though he never sinned, he knows what it's like to be a human, trying to make our way through the brokenness of this world, a place where, like Frederick Buechner said, beautiful and terrible things happen. That's why the author of Hebrews here implores us to hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now notice, they didn't say, hold firmly to the dogma you prescribe to. Or hold firmly to the spirituality you practice. They say hold firmly to the faith you profess. And those things are different. That's because the effectiveness of faith is not based on the person professing it. It's based on the object that the faith is on. Does that make sense? We make faith judgments all the time in everyday life. As a bigger guy, one I have to make frequently is about the structural integrity of chairs. If we're hanging out, me and you, and the only furniture around is made of wicker, don't be offended. I'm going to stand the whole time, right? Too many bad experiences with wicker. It goes down on me. It's not about the quality of our faith. It's the quality of what we're placing our faith in. It's not about how much I believe in that wicker chair. It's about how sturdy it actually is. You see, we can hold firmly to the faith we profess, not because we have some remarkable amount of faith, but because we have a remarkable God in whom we're placing our faith in. No matter what comes, the one we're placing our faith in is faithful. Scripture actually says, I don't know if you know this, that even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Jesus said the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Scripture says even when you don't have that, Even when you don't have a mustard seed worth of faith, God still is faithful. God sees us. He sees you. He empathizes with us. And he is faithful to us. In Christ, we are fully known and fully loved when everything is laid bare before our Father in heaven, even the things that we don't want anyone else to see. There is no disgust There is only grace. There is only love. There is only help in our time of need. And that's what the author goes on to say in verse 16. Let us then, again, that's another kind of therefore statement. Because all of this is true, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Y'all, our God is a God of gracious access. 
Our God is a God of gracious access, a God whose throne is open for us to receive mercy and grace 24 7, 365. And that, my friends, is good news. Did you know that over 40 times in just the Psalms alone, people cry out asking God for grace? Why? Because they believed and knew that God would come through, that God would give it to them. They knew they could approach the throne of grace with confidence no matter what was happening in their lives or in their world, and God would give them what they need. And they also understood that God's grace is so much more than just forgiveness when they mess up. As pastor and theologian Nadia Boltz-Weber says, God's grace is not defined as God being forgiving to us even though we sin. Grace is when God is a source of wholeness, which makes up for all my failings. My failings hurt me and others and even the planet, and God's grace to me is that my brokenness is not the final word. God's grace is not just forgiveness or moving past a sin, something we've committed, something we've done to ourselves or to someone else. God's grace moves us toward wholeness. Like Nadia said, God's grace is that our brokenness, no matter if we've put it on ourselves or somebody else has put it on us, no matter what has happened to you, no matter where you are on this journey of faith or this journey of life, God's grace to you is that whatever you have been through does not have the final word that your brokenness is not forever, that your sin cannot stick to you. The lie about God is that when everything is laid before him, he is repulsed and we should be ashamed. The lie says God can't wait to punish us when we step out of line. But the truth The truth about God is that when everything is laid bare before him, he loves us. The truth is that even on our worst days, God offers more grace. We have unceasing access to God's unending supply. We see this as God reveals his character to us throughout scripture, but I think we see it most vividly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the word grace in the New Testament is the Greek noun charis, and it means gracious gift with no expectation of repayment. Listen, grace is love with no strings attached. That's what grace is. Grace is love with no strings attached, and God's grace to us is unending, unwavering, and relentless And we see that so vividly in Jesus. God's grace become human, embodied grace. That's actually how John describes him in his account of Jesus' life. John 1, 14, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his home among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of what? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth and truth. Now, I have to kind of do another sidebar here and say I get really frustrated at how many Christians today talk about Jesus being full of grace and truth. The way that they frame it really bothers me. Let me tell you why. I constantly hear people say things like, remember, Jesus was full of grace and truth. We can't just be gracious. We got to be truthful too. We can't be too gracious 
Got to balance it out with the truth. This perspective presupposes that Jesus' grace and truth are in opposition with one another. It, it teaches that, that somehow they don't work together, that somehow there is something inside of Christ that is incongruent with itself. To put it bluntly, there is nothing in the account of Jesus' life or in the entire 66 books of Scripture that would indicate that God's grace and truth are somehow in conflict with one another or that they have to balance each other out. The truth is that God is gracious. The truth is that God is compassionate and faithful and forgiving and just and loving. The truth is that these core characteristics of God compelled him to put on flesh and make his home with us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. In a world where there are so many lies about the nature of God. Oh, did I do something? Did I sit on something? It's a wicker chair. Got me structure integrity of this stool. In a world where there are so many lies about the nature of God, Jesus is the embodied truth of who God is and what God is like. And God in Christ put this truth on full display when he defeated sin and evil and death by rising from the grave after being crucified on the cross. The truth is that this fullness of life Jesus offers is to anyone and everyone, and it is a gift of grace. It is love with no strings attached. And just like with any gift, we don't earn it and we can't pay it back. But like Frederick Buechner said, we have to reach out and take it. And one of the ways that Christians have been reaching out and taking the gift of grace for the last 2,000 years is through this practice called communion. And so this morning, you may have seen the tables on the side when you walked in, we are going to end our gathering by giving us a chance to receive God's grace through communion. So I'm going to say a prayer, and I'm going to tell you all about it, okay? Lord God, you are good. You are gracious. You are unrelenting in your love for us. God, we see that most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that as we partake in this time of communion, we remember who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. God, that you would remind us of this grace. That we would reach out and take it. We would carry it with us wherever we go and we would give it away to other people in need because we know it's not some fixed amount. It's not like we have a cup full and we pour a little out and we lose it and we pour a little out and we lose it. God, that our cup overflows is what scripture says. That your grace is a never-ending supply that you lavish upon us. I pray that we would remember that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.